0: the Authority, Slate's His Dark Materials podcast. It's Season 2, Episode 3, Theft. We're Slate's resident scholars of experimental theology. My name is Laura Miller. I'm a books and culture columnist for Slate, and my demon is a sea otter named Saki.
1: I'm Dan Cois. I'm a writer at Slate, and my demon is a prairie vole named Gilda. All
0: right, we're here to talk about Episode 3 in the second season of His Dark Materials. And in this episode, everybody's looking for someone. The witches and Mrs. Coulter are trying to find Lyra. The pale-faced man is looking for Will. Lee Scoresby is looking for Stanislaus Grumman, who has something that might help Lyra. And Will and Lyra are looking for Will's father at the direction of the alethiometer. And then there's Lord Boreal, who's looking for not someone, but something. An object that will be very important in the story ahead of us.
1: The man that made that doorway has a knife. I think he's hiding in the tower. The one with the carved angels around it. Totally, actually. Bring the knife to me. And I'll
0: give you what you want. This episode covers... Chapters 5 through 7 of The Subtle Knife. The witches are on the brink of war with the Magisterium, and Mary Malone is learning how to communicate with dust. Meanwhile, in Oxford, Lyra eludes a scary cop, discovers movies, and has her alethiometer stolen by Lord Boreal. One of the kids in Chitagaza assures Will that no, 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 there's nobody up in that tower in the middle of town. Why would he even think such a thing? And finally, Lee Scoresby visits yet another Arctic frontier town in search of Grumman and gets captured by the magisterium, then figures out something important about Mrs. Coulter while he's in the dungeons. Today, we'll take a closer look at Lee, everybody's favorite cowboy aeronaut.
1: As always, on The Authority, we're going to do our best to talk about the worlds of Philip Pullman's books without spoiling ahead the story of the books. So, we'll fill in the blanks for those of you who haven't read the books in a while, or maybe at all. We'll discuss demons and witches and Lee Scoresby in great detail, but we won't give away what's in store for any of the characters. Nevertheless, some stuff we talk about might be considered spoiler-adjacent if you're a person with a serious allergy to knowing anything ahead of time. So, buyer beware.
0: And we're here to answer your questions. If you've got a burning question about his dark materials or you can't figure out how to work your lithiometer, just email us at asktheauthority, all one word, at slate.com.
1: Thanks to listener Jack Nadler, who was inspired by the architecture of Chittagase, to send us a photo of a tower in Florence that he saw during a visit about a decade back. It's the Piazzale Michelangelo. And it's got those exact cool staircases that Lyra and Will sit on, the ones we talked about last episode, the ones that Laura said reminded her of the M.C. Escher staircases in the opening credits. And this raises an issue for me that we didn't talk about before, uh, which is just that Chittagasse is Italy. Like, it's clearly Italy. It's got Florentine architecture. It's got an Italian name. They eat tasty Italian bread. There's the the Torre delle Angeli, but. I feel like I still don't fully understand how it is that Lyra walked through a window in the north but, and Will walked through a window in Oxford, and they both ended up in some other world's version of Italy. Like, there's a match between the Oxford of Will's world and the Oxford of Lyra's world. So how can they go from both those worlds to Italy some, you know, thousands of miles away? Please, Laura, explain what we know about how Gaze
0: works. Well, I don't know if I can completely explain it, but as Boreal has said— Chitagaze is a crossroads world, which might be one of the reasons why the production design has those crisscrossing sort of stairways. And we'll find out more about why it is a crossroads world in episode four. There does seem to be this spatial correspondence between Will's Oxford and Lyra's Oxford and then Chitagaze. But it's important to remember that Lyra did not arrive directly at Chittagaze. She walked for some time before getting there. And she traveled to the world, to the universe of Chittagaze, through Azrael's anomaly, which was ripped into the fabric of the Arctic in her world. And when we're talking about Azrael's anomaly, which is a theme that is just kind of humming under much of the action in season two, all
1: bets are off right it's not just that it it created this window that goes God knows where, but also that it's created havoc in the natural universes of all these different worlds it's There's some sense in the books that it's redirected rivers and melted glaciers and changed the a lot
0: of fog yeah, created fog everywhere,
1: in. and the the bears can't find food and all this stuff, so yeah, I guess it's true that that anomaly makes everything a mess. And it's useful, I think, to think of Chitagaze as a crossroads world, a world that you go through to get somewhere else, where maybe some of the rules of what corresponds to what might be a little bit different. We also got a note from a listener named Andy Critchfield, who points out that the specters in Chitagaze do not look like Dementors so much as they look like the smoke monster from Lost. Andy is correct, and we regret the error. Onward!
0: Okay, well, we begin this episode with the destruction of whatever sort of home the witches had. This has never been that clear to us. So this is yet another front in the Magisterium's increasingly all-out war on heretics. That is, whatever people or parts of Lyra's world they don't already control, both physically and ideologically. But it's also the act of one man, Fra MacPhail, in a bid to consolidate his power within the church— Meanwhile, we're getting a bit more information about Will's father, John Perry, and why he has attracted the attention of some kind of shadowy British intelligence service who want the cache of letters that Will is carrying. There's a growing sense in this episode of all kinds of powerful, but maybe indistinct forces bearing down on Lyra and her friends.
1: That scene of the witches mourning their island or whatever it is, is very powerful, but I mostly thought it was great that Serafina Pekeloff finally has a reason for her mascara to be running down her face instead of it just being a fashion choice as it typically is. Uh, Fortunately, Will and Lyra have found a hideout in Chitagase, a place where there are no adults to control them because there are no adults at all because no adults can follow them there without being attacked by the
0: specters. Lyra, however, wants to find out more about Dust from Mary Ballone, and this leads her back to our Oxford and to danger in the form of the pale-faced man who nearly captures her. Dan, what do we know about this guy?
1: Yeah, so this is the guy who shows up in Mary Malone's office when uh when Lyra comes back to visit her, and he's a guy we've seen before. He we saw him last season in Cahoots with Lord Boreal. We saw him in Will's house. When Will escaped with the letters and the other henchman of Lord Boreals was killed. In the books, his name is Walters. He works for an outfit called Special Branch, Special Branch, which is one of the many British military intelligence services, the MIs, you know, like MI6. There's also MI, there's like MIs one through 19, it turns out. I like to imagine that MI1 is just like cake baking and MI 19 (laughs) is nuclear explosions. So he his job is. He is tasked with finding John Perry's letters to his wife, Will's mother. We hear from Will's grandparents uh, in the last episode that that's what the police really want, the police in the form of this guy, Walters, who's posing as uh, just a regular, ordinary policeman. Special Branch seems to suspect that John Perry found a way to travel between worlds, and they want to know where that portal is that he discovered that allowed him to do so. What they don't understand is that there are actually two portals right in Oxford. Although, if, you know, if the pale-faced man walked through Will's portal to Chittagaze, he wouldn't be realizing much of anything for long.
0: Meanwhile, Lee Scoresby is on the hunt for Stanislaus Grumman in Lyra's World. And he pumps the clientele of this sort of honky-tonk saloon in Nova Zembla. Let's listen to some of those conversations. you heard of a Stanislaus Grumman? Mm. Strange man. Lean, tough, curious about everything. You know but, where he is? You know, he was a geologist or an archaeologist. Some say he became a shaman and went to live way off in the wilderness with some folk up the Yenisei. That's interesting. But the last I heard, he died. He died? A trader told me. Grooman got his leg caught in a trap, cut it right to the bone. We had a man in here last week said Grumman survived that trap. Okay, so the sketchy-seeming bartender at the Samirsky Hotel directs Lee to an observatory where he questions the lone scientist stationed there. But this guy turns out to be a total religious fanatic who attacks Lee for seeking a heretic. And Lee is defending himself and he accidentally kills the man. And then the magisterium show up and capture him. Okay, so in this episode, we're going to take a closer look at Lee, who he is, and the role he plays in Lyra and Will's story. Dan, Lee is a particularly favorite character of Pullman's. Uh, I know that because he told me that. And in some ways, he is the sort of classic idealized American movie cowboy figure a sort of a composite of a bunch of characters from westerns that a, a little British boy like Pullman would have grown up loving and finding a little bit exotic.
1: Lee comes from Texas, which in Lyra's world is part of New Denmark, not America. One fun thing about the Historic Materials books is that like the Harry Potter books, they basically don't give a shit about America at all. America is just not a power in British fantasy yeah. universes. It's quite refreshing. Um, he grew up uh, Lee did playing cowboys and Indians with his demon Hester, reenacting the Battle of the Alamo. Although in his world that was a battle between the Danes and the French. Somehow the the full mm. ramifications of colonialism in Lyra's world are, have never been fully explained. I don't think.
0: A lot of what we know about Lee's past comes from a novella that Philip Pullman published after the f- uh, the first trilogy was done. And that novella is called Once Upon a Time in the North. Dan, what does that book tell us about Lee?
1: It was published in 2008. It's a very small, very charming little hardback, under 100 pages. Uh, I mean, the first thing is I would recommend that everyone read it if you haven't already. Even if you haven't read the His Dark Materials books, this just very slim adventure story is fun as hell, and you can read it in like an hour, and it's just like a little like a adrenaline shot of Philip Pullman universe right to your nervous system. It tells a story set 35 years before the events of his dark materials. It's a time when Lee Scoresby has just gotten his hot air balloon. He's just getting into aeronauting. He's still learning how to fly it. In fact he um is learning out of a book that he that the guy who sold him the balloon gave him about how basically it's like balloon flying for dummies, but he only has the first half of the book because it was torn in half and he never got the second half. Uh, you know, and it's, that's all of a piece with the sort of, with a picture of a sort of rapscallion, ne'er do well young Lee that this book presents. Um, he sets it down in a Russian town. He gets mixed up in a shipping dispute with some local politicians. He courts an extremely dumb young woman. It's very fun. It's an origin story for very, for two very important things. In Lee's life, things he remains attached to decades later, Yorick, who he meets for the first time and has his first adventure with, and his trusty Winchester rifle, which Lee wields throughout the books. The Lee of this TV series, I think, owes a lot to the Lee of this book. You know, in the novels, Lee's a lot older when he meets Lyra during their adventures. He's, I mean, he's basically 60, and there are a lot of sections where Lee's, you know, thinking about all the money he's been socking away in his Wells Fargo account for retirement. But the Lin-Manuel Miranda version is clearly nowhere near retirement. He's not thinking about that at all. He's he's a lot more like the Lee of Once Upon a Time in in the North. He's he's younger. He's out for adventure. He's totally full of beans.
0: But he also dislikes violence, which is a, an interesting point. And he's very troubled at having killed the scientist in the observatory, even though it was completely in self defense. And we get this scene. Of Hester discussing this with him, and, and I like the way that that illustrates one of the ways that that demons work. A demon is not necessarily or exactly a person's conscience, but it's definitely one side of these internal conversations that we have within ourselves. Like, how should I feel about this thing that I just did that is really against my principles?
1: Right. It's interesting that we see it in good people and bad people. Right. Fra McPhail does it well now. Cardinal McPhail. Does it when he when he signs the order to bomb the to bomb which island, we see his demon telling him, well, it's a sin, but you'll have to atone for it. Uh, demons sort of play that they're they're the voice in our head in a good way, reminding us of our principles and maybe helping us figure out the answer to a question because they get to play the other side of, of the question. Lee is is purportedly named for Lee Van Cleef, who played the bloodthirsty villain in like 10 million Westerns, including a bunch of Sergio Leone uh, spaghetti Westerns. But Lee, unlike those villains, as you say, just has no appetite for violence. He In a crucial moment in the book, The Subtle Knife, he says to Hester, I don't like taking lives. And every time he does take a life, we really see him feel it. And that's part of the strict moral code by which he runs his business and by which he runs his personal life. He, you know, he's the kind of guy who makes a pledge. He keeps it. It's important to him that others behave with honor. It's all very sort of traditionally upright Upstanding cowboy hero stuff. Uh, and it's always been a part of the uh I have always thought sort of the fundamentally two-dimensional nature of this character.
0: He's like a knight in a in an old Arthurian um yeah. romance. You know, he's governed by this sort of code of chivalry. Okay, so getting past that 2D thing that you like, we get this scene in the series that doesn't appear in the books. Um, After the magisterium captures and imprisons Lee, Mrs. Coulter finds out he's there and she comes in to question him. And we've already seen Mrs. Coulter tell off the new cardinal and we know that she's hot on the trail of the witch's prophecy concerning Lyra. She last saw Lyra riding off in Lee's airship. So she is pretty sure Lee knows where she is, although she's wrong about that. And she says that she's going to torture him if he doesn't reveal where Lyra is. In the books, these two characters never meet. So in in this scene, when Lee tells Mrs. Coulter that her threats won't work because an abusive father left him with a super high tolerance for pain, the series is adding a major new element to Lee's backstory. And not just to Lee's backstory. (laughs) Yeah. He'd humiliate
1: me until I'd said enough sorries to make up for whatever
0: thing he decided that day would justify his temper, you know?
1: You do know, don't you? You know,
0: because you had parents just like mine. Of course you did. Of course you did. Dan, tell me, what do you think of this edition?
1: I am not a fan of this edition. Uh, It feels like, like a very basic screenwriting hack. Like the first idea you have when you're thinking, well, I got to give this character some, some backstory. What should I give them? I guess they were abused as a child. And then it's like, well, Oh, I've got these two characters I need backstory for. I guess they were both abused as children. And one reason that I feel like it really doesn't work is because it's trying to direct tie between these two characters who I strongly feel don't have that much in common. Like Mrs. Coulter. Sure. A a history of abuse would explain a lot about her emotional reserve and about her own predilection for abusing uh, those that she cares about. But like, why would you then draw a line between her and Lee of all people? Like what on earth about Lee Scoresby, carefree, wisecracking Texan, says, domineering, hateful, abusive father. I just don't see it. And I, I will give it to Lynn manuel Miranda, who through much of this series has been a, a real scholar of the – the shouting and grinning school of acting. Uh, this is, he does a good job in this scene. It is clearly his Emmy clip. He really holds his own against Ruth Wilson, which is hard to do. She's very good. She's very, it just as good in this scene as she is in every scene. She's appropriately intense, but then seeing Lee Scoresby wisecracking guy, all of a sudden turn into this intense, very empathetic in tune with his and someone and his enemy's feelings person just doesn't seem to make any sense at all nevertheless that last moment with hester telling him you did good is like legitimately touching it still seems like screenwriting overreach to me you know i've i've always loved about lee that he has always been very determinedly two-dimensional he's he's a cowboy aeronaut like that is not the point of a cowboy aeronaut is not his deep reserve's of interior trauma it's that he's a cowboy who flies a balloon he's a comic book character in a delightful way he's philip pullman getting in touch with the heroes of his own childhood on the page and so this attempt to like wrestle him into the three-dimensional suit uh that that is our contemporary idea of what a sympathetic character must wear feels really misguided and i don't know that I'm justified necessarily in feeling this way because, for example, we've praised the series over the course of this podcast at the ways that it's made Mrs. Coulter much more complex through things like backstory and by exploring further her relationships with the patriarchy within which she lives. So why do I love that, but I don't love this attempt to make Lee more complex? What did you think?
0: Well, I think that it does make sense in a certain way, and yet also I can see why it would bother you. And let me explain what my theory of this scene is. I think I get the sense that one of the things the series is doing with Mrs. Coulter by making her really one of the two, I mean, in the, in the book, Will and Lyra are the two main characters. And Mrs. Coulter is almost like a cipher. In the series, she comes across as one of the main characters. She's basically a co-lead. Yeah.
1: Yeah. One of the paths we followed through the story is her path from beginning to end, it seems like.
0: Right. And I think we're going to see, as we have seen in the past, Mrs. Coulter being confronted with people who have dealt with the challenges that she's faced in different ways. From the ways that she has. So we saw when um, Dr. Lancelius was testifying before the magisterium about the witches, we saw this moment where he was talking about their freedom or their deeper understanding of the natural world. We saw the camera cut away to Mrs. Coulter's face. And obviously, this statement is a way of suggesting that there might be other ways for her to find meaning and power in her world besides working within the magisterium. How I read this scene is that Lee and Mrs. Coulter may have had similar childhood experiences, but they dealt with it in completely different ways. And one of the things that I think really messes with her in this scene is not just that he's bringing up the feelings of vulnerability and powerlessness that she had as an, an abused child but also that i'm pretty sure she believes that everything she does is is not is almost not a choice that the the world or the situation that she has been given compels her to behave in, these, in, in, in the way that she has. And if she meets someone like Lee, who, you know, we don't know what's happened to Lee since he had those experiences. Maybe he just dealt with them in a completely different way by, I guess as a therapist would say, processing them. Maybe one of the reasons why he adheres to such a, such a rigorous moral code is because he doesn't want to be an arbitrary, cruel figure to use the power that he has in a way that's wrong. And that's why being, you know, that's why this structure of right and wrong is so important to him, or loyalty is so important to him, or being constant is so important to him. Now, in a way, this is you know, I can see why a, a Lee fan might not like this because then it just turns Lee into like an object lesson for Mrs. Gulter, right. as opposed to a character in his own right. But since you don't really want him to be that much of a character in his own right, I don't mind it. I totally get that it is a little bit cheesy to have, you know, this dark secret be this thing that you know just feels like it. Uh, it is a kind of a generic dark secret in a way, but. I do think it makes sense for Mrs. Coulter and I do think that one of the things the series is doing is confronting Mrs. Coulter with ways of dealing with the kinds of experiences that she's had the confinement of being a big woman in her society versus the freedom of the witches the cruelty that she exhibits versus the nobility of Lee how you know the way that he has taken that same traumatic ex- experience and done something different with it and that this is kind of breaking the character open, and we do see that scene where she can she can barely stand on her own afterwards in the hallway, and the the monkey comes up and and just holds her hand, and she's usually kind of cold to the monkey, but she accepts this comfort from the, from from her, from her monkey demon at this moment because she's so shaken.
1: I mean, the other thing that he talks about in that conversation that really shakes her is. Lyra, and his love for Lyra, and his respect for her, and I do think it really shakes her to see the clear bond that has been created, I'm sure, to her mind, almost instantaneously based on nothing between this aeronaut and her daughter, the daughter who she you know is now chasing after and right she rightfully believes despises her and so in that way he's another kind of object lesson for her another example of the ways that her she thinks predetermined path has pushed her into becoming a person who isn't loved or respected by the the person she seemingly cares most about uh at least at least she professes to and i buy all that i agree that If you're going to have Lee be a two-dimensional character, why not also have him in the service of building another character and building the storyline? And I have no idea if this is the way that the development of this property went, but that scene just really screamed to me. Like that, like the producers and the screenwriters saying to themselves at some point in the process, we got to get a big actor for this, and we're not going to get a big actor unless we give them a big scene where they talk about something serious. So, okay, I got five minutes, and I'm going to write it.
0: <laughs> but couldn't it also be Dan that the that the screenwriting is is kind of on the nose in the scene? Like, I think a a more a, a more gifted, adept screenwriter might have been able to make that scene less, a little less obvious and cheesy.
1: Right. It's a lot of speaking the subtext.
0: You know, one last thing I do want to add is that one of the things that was a little bit weird for me always about the trilogy is that Lee does seem kind of under-motivated in his total devotion to Lyra. Yeah. But if he basically sees in her the vulnerable child that he once was, and again, he's transcending this past by instead of harming the child, rescuing the child, it does, I mean, he he hasn't known her for very long and he's basically just thrown over his whole life to sort of, you know, help her. And it maybe gives him a little bit more of a motivation.
1: Oh, that's an interesting idea. The notion that he sees in her the kid he once was. And he, you know, as much as he wishes that someone had once thrown all their cards into helping him out. Yeah. He now is going to do this for this kid. Yeah, Certainly it is true that there's absolutely no reason why Lee should buy in completely and and love Lyra so deeply based on their very short interaction. Other than that, we, we do too, where we love her when we read these books. And so every time that anyone, whether Yorick or Lee or anyone else, is like, Lyra is the greatest, we're like, yes, agreed. <laughs> Finally, <laughs> yeah. someone else yeah. sees it.
0: I mean, part of that is just the service of the plot line. But I, I, I agree that this was sort of kind of clumsily executed, but I, I don't really have that big of a problem with this little bit of backstory that, that Lee's been given. And I do feel that it's interesting the way all of these different people that Mrs. Coulter encounters put pressure on the story she's been telling mm-hmm. herself about how, she, why she is the way she is. But anyway, let's go back to the rest of the the episode, um, which feels to me like a a kind of a transitional episode. There's some catching up with a lot of storylines or pushing this bit a little bit further to set something else up. We see Mary Malone struggling to communicate with dust. Trying to do it the way that she's seen Lyra do it. But of course, we know that Lyra does it in this kind of unconscious way. And Mary Malone is not that kind of person. So she's, she's, she's having a hard time. But then she unwittingly activates the cave when she goes off and casts the I Ching. And I believe in the, in the books that they have a, you know, a traditional set of, of I Ching yarrow stalks in the, in, in the actual lab, in the office of the lab. So I believe that's where she is when she's doing this. So there, there's some proximity. Um, the I Ching is a, is a very ancient Chinese method of divination that uses these stalks and, and the stalks is like the most kind of old school way to do it. And there's this complicated method that you use to generate semi-random numbers um, that form a hexagonal pattern that you then can interpret Using this text that's about 2,500 years old. Um, the I Ching, the, the translation of the, of the name is the Book of Changes. And while it may not be obvious to the Western eye that the hexagons of the I Ching resemble the alethiometer, they're nevertheless understood in Chinese culture to represent certain images, like the ones on Lyra's compass, or for that matter, images on something like tarot cards, another divination tool that's used, uh, but this one from the West. And all of these objects in His Dark Materials are like an interface between human beings and dust, Um, like a way that we can communicate with dust And the frame of mind that Mary goes into when she's um, casting the I Ching is very different from the frame of mind that she was in when she was sitting at the computer and being frustrated, which is an important point. And when she casts the I Ching, the message that she gets is actually, I don't think, from the I Ching itself, I think it's a quote from Lao Tzu, the the, uh, founder of Taoism, but that the line is to the mind that is still the whole universe surrenders, and that is a very important piece of the whole of the puzzle of how human beings interact with with dust.
1: It's really interesting to see the way that Mary interprets dust using the I Ching, the sort of the long intermediated struggle that she goes through to just get this very simple message. And you compare it. You know, to the way the Lyra interacts with the alethiometer, which is so intuitive and instinctive. And there's just this magical talent that has come to her, this ability to be connected to dust and to read its messages. Mary Malone's way of of communicating with dust is much more like Fra Pavel or any other a Alethiometer reader in Lyra's world, one who doesn't have her sort of preternatural gift. You remember him last season, like painstakingly going through all these enormous books to decode every last little twitch of the yeah. needle, according to this ancient knowledge. And it's not that different for Mary Malone, like trying to suss out what hexagonal shape has been made by these numbers, then referring to her book, which then gives her like not very, not particularly useful or specific <laughs> responses that she then has to try and like tease out. Lyra just knows that shit, and she doesn't have to go through that whole rigmarole. But Dust still communicates.
0: Yeah, the answer that that that, that I Ching gives her is pretty clear. She just doesn't understand it, mm-hmm. and that's the other thing about Lyra. Not only is she able to sort of interpret these symbols, but she can convert them into the kind of message. That she needs to hear more easily than the adults can.
1: Right. Well, who is the saint that she asked Pan about in episode two when she asks where she'll find the scholar? It's like, Pan, who's the saint who has such and such? And he goes, Well, it's St. Peter, right? And She goes, Oh, right. So it must be at St. Peter's College.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just she doesn't she I think it's almost that because she's not applying that much intellect to it, it just comes to her so much, so much more easily. Okay, so another thing that we see in this episode that is a really sweet moment is Lyra going to the movies. Um, Dan, what do you think the significance is of the movie that Will takes her to see, which is which is Paddington?
1: Paddington 1, not 2. Uh, very firmly locating this in a very particular time and place. I don't know that there's any specific significance to Paddington other than that it's an incredibly good movie. It's also... Sort of created by the same sort of broader British upmarket culture cabal that um that Jack Thorne belongs to and and it is a similarly um, good and tasteful adaptation of a beloved children's work. but the thing that I most love about this scene is the idea that that Lyra on watching this movie sees on the screen a talking bear and unlike everyone else in that movie theater would just be like, Oh, okay, sure. Yeah. That bears talk. That's what they do in, in my experience. Um, and she seems not phased by that at all. I really love how enraptured Lyra is by the movie. I love how she just can't stop eating popcorn. Like all the rest of us in, in the book, Lyra loves movies even more, and in fact, there's a very funny bit in the book about how Will takes her to a movie really just to kill some time until the evening when he feels like they're less likely to be caught or seen but it it ends up creating one of her most endearing moments when she at the end of the movie she's like that was the best thing i ever saw in my entire life i don't know why they never invented this in my world and then and then wills like it's not late enough what should we do and she's like let's watch another movie so they do and then later she declares that there are only two things that are better about wills oxford than her world which is the cinema and hamburgers oh, which that's seems so like Lyra. a very appropriate response for a kid her age and it's a very endearing and and connective moment
0: Okay. And so last but not least, in this episode, the plot gets a major kick forward when Lord Boreal shows up in his fancy-ass Tesla, saving Lyra from the guy who apparently I thought he was working with to try to catch her. I mean, I cannot keep track of this guy and his schemes and his skullduggery and who are his henchmen and allies and who isn't. But he, he... rescues her from the pale-faced man and then it seems like he's going to make off with her but then he just lets her out he seems like such a nice guy she doesn't recognize him and it's only when she gets out of the car she realizes that he's taken her lithiometer it
1: seems to me that it's not a coincidence that he's there right when she's being chased by the pale-faced man and that he sees an opportunity to get her directly in his clutches for some period of time and to connect to her, and he doesn't mind undercutting his henchman's goals, at least for that moment, because it certainly gets him closer to what he wants.
0: Yeah, yeah. So he's just not somebody that you want to be in a league with, because he's just going to, you he's know, out like, for like himself. that guy clearly, needs to yeah. find Will, and Lyra, Lyra knows where Will is, and and he's screwed now, because <laughs> Boreal just decided he wanted the alethiometer instead. Um, <laughs> so then... Lyra and Will decide to confront him. They go to his, of course, super sleek, highly, you know, automated palatial abode and, um, and, and demand it. And he basically tells them that he'll only give it back to them if they bring him a very special knife from the Torre de Angeli in Gaza. Dan, what do you think Orioles game is?
1: It has never been entirely clear what Boreal's game is. He he wants his knife, and he clearly knows about and cares about the connection between worlds. Um, In the books, we learn that he's found his way into a dozen or so other worlds, and that he's been in this one for years. I think for like 12 years, he says – and he's been working as a spy he's been sort of working the levers of power which he says were easy for him to recognize in this world because of all the work he'd done in Lyra's world also sort of advancing up the ranks of the of the 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 fringes of the magisterium uh he got knighted in this world just the usual stuff you do if you're just like brand new to to a world <laughs>
0: no background check on this guy
1: uh, the idea that you could just show up in a completely different world yeah. um with carrying around a tiny snake uh and be knighted <laughs> within 12 years is fantastic uh but he's but he's really smooth he's like a cool customer he's much yeah. smoother and cooler in the tv series than he is in the books. You know, in this, he's a handsome young man in a Tesla with a beautiful house straight out of Ex Machina. Uh, and in the lovely books,
0: suits.
1: Lovely suits, yeah. Lovely suits. Oh, beautiful suits. um, a, a, a Like a very luxe accent. In the books, he's like an old creeper in a Rolls Royce with these horrible perfume-scented pocket squares that Lyra gets really fixated on. Just the dirtiest old man you can possibly imagine. Yeah. Much nicer to deal with and look at uh, in this series, but no clearer, I think, as to what his eventual goals are. We know that he's a grasper for power. We get the sense that he's someone who wants in some way to master these other worlds or at least to use the connections between those other worlds to his own benefit. but We don't exactly know why or how.
0: We do know that he's collecting things because yeah. he has this elaborate collection in this kind of basement museum thing that he ushers Will and Lyra into. So maybe he just wants to acquire a lot of stuff but uh who can say?
1: And they do get the sense that maybe his predilection for collecting is one of the ways that he's accumulated his wealth, right? Like in this in the way that, you know, Lyra, I can't remember if this happens in the series, but in the books, she has some coins and Will is like, Are you just carrying around solid gold coins? Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> exactly, in her world yeah. things have a completely different value than in Will's world. And so if you're a canny person who's good at collecting things and then and then exchanging them for mu- for the currency, whether the social currency or the physical hard currency of whatever world you're in, you can maybe accumulate a lot of wealth and influence in a short amount of time.
0: We'll just have to wait till next week's episode to find out a little bit more about what this guy is up to. That episode is called The Tower of the Angels, which is the English.
1: No one's in the Tower of the Angels, of course, Will. I don't know why you'd think so.
0: <laughs> no, no, there's nobody up there. Nobody yeah. up there at all. So join us next week. And in the meantime, talk to us. On Twitter, I'm at, at Magicians Book, and Dan is at Dan Kois.
1: Or email us a question or a comment or a photo of a Florentine tower at Authority at slate.com. That was so cool that he sent us that.
0: Our producer is Phil Circus. Slate's editorial director for audio is Gabriel Roth. I'm Laura Miller.
1: I'm Dan Cois.
0: And remember, without stories, we wouldn't be human beings at all.